For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Late last month, President Joe Biden designated the first national monument of his presidency. The Camp Hale Continental Divide National Monument spans 10,000 acres in north-central Colorado and is best known as a World War II training camp. Camp Hale is where the Army's first mountain unit was trained for insertion into the European theater. The camp gave the 10th Mountain Division the ability to train for the harsh winter conditions that were similar to those of the Alps in Italy. There, they made a name for themselves fighting German soldiers in high mountain strongholds. More importantly for conservationists, Camp Hale provides critical winter range for elk as well as mule deer habitat, migration corridors, and headwaters fisheries. Hunters and anglers are not understandably a little suspicious of national monument designations since many of them do not allow hunting and fishing. Some presidents have used the Antiquities Act to designate huge chunks of land, which critics say is not what Congress intended when the Antiquities Act was passed. However, it's worth pointing out that there are many national monuments that allow hunting and fishing. For instance, among several species, you can hunt pronghorn in the Rio Grande del Norte in New Mexico. You can angle for trout in Browns Canyon National Monument in Colorado and go after elk in the Upper Missouri Breaks National Monument in Montana. Camp Hale may not allow hunting, but like most national monuments, it permanently protects habitat that game animals need to continue to thrive. Well, we should go back, put a little asterisk there. As we've seen in recent years, monuments can be batted back and forth like a political ping pong ball, depending who's in office. But for now, there are some very good protections for very good habitat for these game critters that we love to chase. Hunters and anglers should have a seat at the table when presidents designate national monuments. We're going to talk more about having a seat at the table 
in a special interview with the BLM director, Tracy Stone Manning, later on in this episode. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And if you've been paying attention, we're still on a serious bird hunt and kick, but not for long. We wrapped up a duck lore shoot in South Dakota. If I had to somehow put it into context, I would say this. If all the animals in my home and beloved state of Montana knew South Dakota existed, we would have no animals in Montana. Food, cover, water, seemingly everywhere, is just on a totally different level than Montana. This is how spoiled we were. We hunted a mix of private and public land. In order to get private land access, we did what everybody did, which was call and knock on doors and put on a lot of miles on the vehicle trying to track down the appropriate landowner, which is hard to do, right? Like, as you may know, custom farming is so prolific now that often the person who has the farming rights also has the hunting rights, but the person who can give the type of land access permission that we need in order to be able to film is the actual landowner, not just the acting agent of the landowner. So in order for us to get permission, we had to get permission from the person who had the hunting rights and the person who owned the property. So that's a lot of extra calling and a lot of uh, explaining who you are, how we got to be there, and, uh, you know, that we're not going to make some sort of nasty adult film out in their farm field. (laughs) Anyway, once we got that permission secured, or if we were just going out on freedom-loving Americans' public land, we basically never stopped seeing birds. Gadwall, widgeon, teal, like crazy everywhere. Big flocks of mallards, not necessarily everywhere. Lots of geese. We were so confident in the ducks sticking around that out of three days of hunting, Sean and I only fired at one group of ducks together, meaning that he and I would alternate. A flock would come in, Sean would shoot one duck and send his dog. The next flock would come in, I would shoot one duck and send out snort. It was a retiree type of hunting, relaxing even. Currently, the limit in South Dakota is six birds, only five of which can be mallards, only two of which can be canvas back, only one of which can be a bluebill. Out of those six birds, there can only be two hen mallards, You got to know your regulations in every state. I'll tell you that. It actually makes it more fun, more interesting, because before you pop up and pull that trigger, you got to do some real species and sex identification. That's tough on a bird that moves as fast as a canvas back. Now, for what you really want to hear, the snort report. Snort, I have to say, is like a seasoned professional, especially when she's sitting right there next to a puppy. At this point, I believe she knows if the shooter will kill the bird before the shooter does. I can guess at this by watching how seriously she considers the incoming waterfowl. If she is on her toes, kind of shaking a little bit, chances are that duck is going to fall. If she is content laying down with just her eyes working, well, maybe we should have let that group pass. Snort is very pro on her marks, as in she can identify where that bird fell very well. She has a great to possibly fantastic nose, but we're still working on some things. She isn't super pumped on handing me the birds. She'll carry birds for miles, but isn't a real believer in a strict handoff routine, which is something that we can work on. 
But what's more concerning is she is still very territorial around the dead birds that she has retrieved. Sean's puppy Case, who is a sweetheart and also built like a little brick shithouse, ended up on business end of this little yellow dog a couple of times. Needless to say, we did some serious work on adjusting the possessive attitude. This is the only dog I've ever had behave this way. I don't mind a tough dog, but I do very much mind a dog that would hurt another dog for no reason. Snort's not biting hard enough to like break skin or anything, but she's definitely biting, not just nipping at another dog, which is concerning. Vet bills are very common as a dog owner, especially to a dog owner that runs their dog hard. We don't need any additional vet bills caused by bad behavior. Anyway, and as I said, this week we have a very special episode lined up for you. As I mentioned in the intro, I recently had the opportunity to sit down with the director of the Bureau of Land Management, Tracy Stone Manning. Director Stone Manning was appointed by President Joe Biden in April of 2021 and confirmed by the Senate in September of that year. Prior to that, she served as the director of the Montana Department of Environmental Quality, the chief of staff for Montana Governor Steve Bullock, and as a vice president at the National Wildlife Federation. We tackled a bunch of different topics in our conversation, including what the BLM does, what the agency is doing about landlocked public land, how oil and gas leases are related to energy production, and what kinds of renewable energy projects are coming down the pike. I also asked her about her own experience hunting and fishing and what her message is to the outdoor community. As the BLM director, Stone Manning is responsible for managing 245 million acres. That's the largest chunk of any federal land management agency and her decisions affect thousands of hunters and anglers who use those lands every year. Stone Manning has been affiliated with some controversial environmentalist groups, and I know not everyone who's listening supported her appointment. But, like the director says at the end of our interview, it's important to stay in communication with our representatives and policymakers, no matter which party they belong to. I was grateful Director Stone Manning took time out of her busy schedule to talk through some of these important topics. So. Without further ado, here's Director Tracy Stone Manning of the Bureau of Land Management. So uh, Bureau of Land Management in the West is, you know, either the greatest thing or, or the hand of government overreach, depending on who you talk to. I mean, as you know, from your time here in Montana, county to county, the high line to Southwest, the opinions can vary greatly. I feel like many people see the BLM as uh, an incredible place to recreate, and others don't honestly know what the acronym means. But those lands are really set aside for means of profit, for means of, of making money. And there's grazing leases, there's mining leases, there's um, all sorts of means for extraction. And one of the interesting things that um, you stepped into was this moratorium on mining leases that Biden initiated when, when he came into office. And now we've seen that uh, the lease process is, is now back and, and open for business. Is there such a thing as as balance on BLM land, or is that system of management something that the recreational user needs to just assume 
that those lands are first and foremost uh, set aside for some form of extraction and then recreation second. So let's start with what it stands for, the Bureau of Land Management. We have the incredible uh, responsibility to manage 245 million acres that all of us own in common. And our job is to deliver um, both on our multiple use mission, multiple uses being everything from uh, what you just talked about, going out and shooting an antelope to uh, developing energy. And so it's our job to make sure that uh, we're able to do those things into the future in a sustainable way. Uh, so, and it's, you know, it's it's what makes the work really interesting. When I when I travel around the West and I talk to my colleagues at the Bureau, I say, why, what, what, what keeps you here? And they typically say two things. They say the people, like we love working with uh, people, with our colleagues and our mission um, because our mission is hard uh, and it's really challenging and it's really important. So if we do our jobs right, we balance those uses and we implement the laws as they were intended. And in regards to the implementation and, and balancing, where does BLM uh, work with or interact with the state management plans that may be in place? So states are a huge partner of ours, uh, right? We have we have a bunch of habitat and they uh, and they manage the wildlife that relies on that habitat. So we have to work really closely with them and with tribes as well. Um, and, and of course, uh, with our neighbors who are private landowners too. I see it as we can't do our work um, without really closely working with the states. Um, and I hope that the states see they can't do their work unless we do our jobs right. We've um, covered on the podcast here, The Week in Review, many times, and, and I foresee covering it many times in the future, the kind of where those fences intersect, the the private, the federal, state and federal in regards to uh, corner crossing. And recently, this, this has been in the works for, for a while, but the the BLM had a a public call to take submissions on basically like coordinates, the location of landlocked or inaccessible federally managed lands, Bureau Bureau of Land Management lands being the, uh, the primary ask. And I wanted to ask you, will I have the opportunity to see how that ended up and where will those submissions go from here? So I was really excited about um, this work because, um, you know, hunters and anglers and recreationists are not only sort of vital to our mission, there are eyes and ears on the ground, right? And who better to tell us about where there are landlocked parcels and the people trying to access those landlocked parcels? So um, as a part of the Dingle Act, we were asked to uh, go ask the public, hey, what, what lands can't you get to that are public that you want to be able to get to? And the response was overwhelming. We got like 6,000 submissions. I mean, some of our sister agencies got like a couple dozen. We got 6,000, right? And that tells me that people really, really care about these lands um, and the ability uh, to get to them. And, you know, we, we all know what, what we're talking about, right? We could pick up 100 acres or access across 100 acres to get to 10,000 acres behind it. 
right? That's the kind of genie in the bottle we're trying to, to let go here. Um, so after, after we went and asked the public, uh, hey, what do, you, what do you got? They gave us 6,000 responses. Um, we did a whole lot of work. And our initial priority access list includes about 712 distinct parcel that covers three and a half million acres across 13 states. And what that is for us is an initial roadmap on um, how to really focus land and water conservation fund acquisitions. Like it just gives us a to-do list to go open up three and a half million acres across 13 states. But we're not done, right? We, we uh, the portal is still up when we're asking uh, the public again for more recommendations. I, I just, ha- I have to ask, what would a potential timeline be on land acquisition or, or the creation of easements to landlocked public land? I, I imagine there's many projects that are already in the works, but uh, do you do you have anything um, on the near horizon that you could share with us? Yeah, well, you know, way back in the day, my very first real job in conservation was running the local land trust in Missoula, Montana. Uh, and it's where I learned that um, private land transactions are just that, right? They're private uh, and they um, and they take the time that it needs to take for the landowner to feel comfortable about uh, about the project. So some of them happen really fast. Some of them take years. We've got a pipeline of projects that we are just continuing to work through. And there's really good news in that the Land and Water Conservation Fund, as I'm sure your listeners may remember, is now not only permanent, but it's permanently funded. So we have we know that there are resources and dollars out there for us to spend. And so it, it enables us to be much better about getting projects in the pipeline. We're not thinking like, well, maybe we'll have money next year. Maybe Congress will give us that money. Maybe they won't. Now we know it's fully funded and we can just start uh, being really methodic about how we go about the work. That's, that's great to hear. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 
Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA, and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. With um, Secretary Holland at the helm, we're starting to see, I I would say, a much stronger voice in regards to tribal representation. And one interesting topic that does come up when, when we start talking about the Bears Ears Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument uh, is access in regards to sure the land is protected under a monument, but can we actually use it? And that argument then extends on to how will our ability to access the ground and state managed wildlife possibly change with more tribal management representation. That's kind of a mouthful. I I apologize for that, but I'll leave it as this. Do you see any minor or major changes in the near future with an increased tribal representation in regards to land land management? Uh, I think it's going to make us smarter and better about how we manage land. Let me um, let me back up before we dive into bears ears. Let me just back up for a minute and, and, and be clear. Um, You know, the, the BLM is committed to building and maintaining strong relationships with tribes and upholding our trust uh, and treaty responsibilities. The president has asked us to do that. The secretary has asked us to do that. To do that. It's the right thing to do, of course. Um, and it, it, we can go deeper um, uh, in the work, meaning that we can really explore and build meaningful, meaningful processes to engage with tribal nations um, and incorporate uh, indigenous knowledge into land management decisions. So for example, I um, had the incredible fortune to spend a week this summer um, up in Alaska uh, learning about subsistence. Folks who have lived off the land uh, their whole lives, folks whose peoples have lived off the land for a millennia. Uh, and um, they had very specific information and knowledge, for example, about caribou migrations that we need to know that will make us better at managing land up there. Um, so that kind of engagement um, with tribes uh, who um, who have been on the landscape um, and living off the landscape for, for a long, long time is just going to make us better land managers, right? Um, and when it comes to bear's ears, uh, I think there's a misconception out there uh, in the hunting world, and I get to say that because I'm one of them, <laughs> a hunter, uh, that um, monuments are closed to hunting. Uh, and that's just not always the case. 
Um, so, you know, I have a, I have a friend, uh, I can still see the picture in my mind's eye, this beautiful Tom Turkey that he, that he got in um, Bears Ears. That's going to continue, right? Um, the, the work that we're doing uh, with the tribes will help inform uh, our management plan uh, and help create our management plan. But that plan is also being created with the public through uh, the laws that guide monument planning. Uh, and so I would really urge the public uh, to engage in the planning process. We try to leave that takeaway on almost every episode. Yeah, yeah. Demo- we, we live in a democracy, right? Engagement matters, matters, matters. Yeah. Absolutely. That's that's great. Um, boy, what a phenomenal opportunity. The uh, I wish we could fill up many hours on the uh, topic of subsistence, but... Uh, that sounds like a, a great experience, great opportunity up there. It, it sure was. And it um, I had it reminded me like what a remarkable thing that uh, there are places in our country where people still live off the land, that, they, that there, there is not a Walmart. They are literally living off the land. And our you know, human culture has lost that in large ways across the planet. Um, and, to, and to make sure that we protect that uh, into the future is just so important. Now, if you as a hunter could choose one species to subsist off of, what would it be? Elk. <laughs> that was a quick response. <laughs> Cow, elk, to be clear, if I'm going to get really specific. Great. You're a Navy family. So prior to Montana, where, where did you come from? Uh, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., and uh, when I was 22, got in a little car and drove to Missoula, Montana, and never looked back until this job. That's wild. And so did, did you, you start hunting in Montana? I did. I, um, I started hunting in my early 30s. Uh, my husband and I had a piece of property um, just outside of town, so I had the outrageous privilege then of um, harvesting meat on land that I lived on. Excellent. Um, white tails, I imagine. Um, Ulysses, oh, mostly. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Nice. And then, um, have you, have you gone after the big antlers? Have you put in for draw tags? What, what's your, your hunting experience? I am all about the freezer. <laughs> so, um, uh, I've not, I've not gone after the, the big tags. I'm, um, I'm really interested in filling my freezer with beautiful meat. I'm I'm a pragmatist when it comes to hunting. Uh, that's that's fantastic. That's better news for me because I I can't draw anything as is. So one last name. <laughs> I mean, we're also Montana. We're so lucky that just on a on a general license, you can you can uh, do a pretty nice job of feeding yourself. Oh, absolutely, and and I do think that um, you know we always grew up where the the trophy, the big antlers were certainly on your mind, but you weren't going to pass up something smaller that was guaranteed. Exactly. And the way that I feel like the wildlife management in the state uh, has provided for for both opportunities on a general tag, which is pretty amazing feat. Yeah, exactly. You know, energy is is and will continue to be a, a, a dominant topic here. And we've heard that the the lease process gets kind of it gets kind of dumbed down to the more lease opportunities the more domestic oil and gas that will be produced 
again, I had had this in the notes, but you know, my one meeting there at the Department of the Interior, the meeting room that we were in was full of drill bits and and uh, fracking uh, implements and things like that, and it seemed very straightforward that Department of the Interior, uh, BLM, we're here to extract and and have uh, energy at at top of mind. But how how true is it to say that the amount of leases directly correspond to the amount of uh, oil and gas produced here in in the U.S.? Well, I think we could probably just look at the numbers, right? There are about 23 million acres uh, of land under lease right now uh, for oil and gas production. Only half of those are being produced. So there are uh, roughly you know, 11 million acres or so, give or take, of lands that are under lease that don't, that, that the companies haven't even asked for uh, a permit to drill on yet. There's also almost 9,000 permits to drill in hand for oil and gas companies. Um, they have the right to, to, to go drill and use those permits today. Um, they have made a choice not to do so uh, in many cases. Um, and that's a business choice, and it's their choice to make because uh, they have the right to do so. Um, so I think that the supply issue is very clear. The supply is there. It's there for the taking. There's almost 9,000 permits. There's almost 10 million acres of land under lease, and the next step after the lease is to go get the permit. Um, so there's plenty of supply out there is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and I'm not going to, you know, guess on why companies choose to or or choose not to uh, activate those permits. I imagine BLM land is going to be a huge part of uh, renewable energy production as well. Are we seeing an increase in uh, leases or permitting for wind, solar, et cetera? We sure are. So there's... Um, the Energy Act of 2020 has asked us to, and President Biden has asked us to, permit 25 gigawatts of power on public lands by 2025. Uh, and so we're seeing um, with this uh, with this, this national commitment to turn to a clean energy future, um, we are seeing um, a big uptick in companies uh, looking for permits on for both solar and wind and uh, to some extent geothermal. And there are some uh, places uh, on where development is underway and in really sort of remarkable ways, like down in the California desert. There's a plan there that was put together over eight years uh, that where all these people came to the table uh, and said, okay, where should we have development? Where should we have solar? Where should we uh, where should we protect desert tortoise? Where should we um, allow for motorized wreck and non-motorized wreck? And remarkably, folks came to agreement. Uh, and now we're implementing that plan. Um, and because all that work was done up front, the work for actually getting the rights of way out the door on the solar projects is all the much easier. And it's going all the faster because all that front end work was done about determining where it was appropriate to do the development. We have three minutes left. You know, I really want to make sure that you have the opportunity to address uh, our crowd. You know, it's, this is a conservation specific podcast. You know, it's, it's a hunting and angling crowd. And if 
you have anything you would like to say specifically to our crowd, I, I definitely want to make sure that you have the opportunity to do so. Yes, please. Uh, yeah, like already you're engaged in um, things about hunting and fishing because you're listening to this podcast. Uh, so thank you for that. And I would ask that you take that engagement um, and do the work to make sure that your kids, your grandkids get the same kind of opportunities that we all have today. Um, it is the fact that we have 245 million acres of public lands on which to go recreate and hunt and fish didn't happen by mistake. It happened because people worked really hard for it. And the fact everybody knows who's listening to this, the fact that we still have robust uh, um, game populations um, in many places is because we worked hard on conservation measures that were funded in part uh, by, you know, um, receipts off of ammunition um, and funded in part by people who really care. So uh, my ask is that people stay engaged uh, in making sure that we uh, have, as the climate changes around us, as, as habitat changes around us, we have to stay all the more engaged to ensure that um, wildlife have places to roam uh, and that our kids and our grandkids uh, have access to them. And what would be the best means of engagement? You know, um, not to hedge, but it depends. Right. Depends on the person. Some people are introverts. Some people are extroverts. Uh, and it depends on where you live. Um, but typically in pretty much every uh, town in America, there are uh, um, local groups that do everything from river cleanups to um, to advocating state legislatures to advocate advocating the federal government. Find those local groups and volunteer. Uh, so many of us started our careers as volunteers. Uh, and it doesn't mean you. If you're volunteering, it doesn't mean that you need to jump into a career in conservation, but it sure makes where you live a better place, uh, sure makes your community a better place. Excellent. Thank you so much for your, for your time. And we certainly look forward to uh, finding ways for, for more access, unlocking public lands was on the top of my list. Uh, top of mine too. So let's go do that. Thank uh, you, Ryan. That sounds great. Well, I'll bump into Missoula sometime, I'm sure. So. All right, good. Take good care. Thank you, you too. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askhal at meateater.com. And also, don't forget, if you're about to head out into the woods, buck a bunch of firewood for hunting camp, head on down www.steeldealers.com and find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need and they're not going to send you off to camp with what you don't. Thanks again and we'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more.
Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.